This is your host, Joseph. Joining me today is Professor Anders Winroth. Professor Winroth is a professor of history at the University of Oslo and the president of the Institute of Medieval Canon Law. He specializes in the history of medieval Europe, especially religious, intellectual, and legal history. His first book, The Making of Gratian's Decretum, was widely recognized as a major and transformational contribution to medieval legal history. He joins me today to discuss medieval law, canon law, and the reemergence of Roman law in Europe. Hello, Professor. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. So let's start before uh, before the relevant time period that we're going to discuss today. I want to start with the collapse of the Roman Empire. So just to, con- to contextualize this a little bit for the listeners, the Western Roman Empire collapses, central authority collapses, but there's still a lot of people living in Western Europe. Did these people have law? Did they have legal systems? Uh, what was the state of the law after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire? I mean, they certainly had law. Uh, it's quite interesting how how the legal system of the Roman Empire de- develops, not only after the collapse, but even before the collapse. You, you get a kind of simplified uh, uh, court system that draws on the 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 ordinary roman roman uh, uh, court process uh, and it continues to work in 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 a very similar way for most of the of the early middle ages uh, it is sometimes said that the early middle ages is, is a time without jurists uh, when might makes right, but that's really a very, very wrong-headed way of looking at this period. That is, there were no law schools. Nobody were educated as a lawyer in the early Middle Ages in Western Europe. Uh, instead, uh, there were a lot of people who actually knew a lot of law simply by being part of practicing it, going to court, working together with people who knew what the law were. And uh, they are the ones who, who carry on a, a kind of, uh, uh, I mean, I, I think watered down is the wrong word, but uh, a kind of, of law that is essentially Roman, uh, but that is working in very p- practical and concrete ways. And some of this spreads to north of the Roman borders as well, uh, where you also have systems of settling of disputes. Every society needs a system of settling of disputes. Uh, whether you do it with uh, educated lawyers or not doesn't really matter. You always find a way of doing it, often with uh, meetings, large meetings of a lot of people that uh, can uh, help uh, the, the parties that are fighting to come to a conclusion. Uh, it can also guarantee that that, that uh, settlement will be observed in, in the future. And that is surely how how, uh, law worked after the fall of the Roman Empire. That's very helpful. Thank you for that description. I also wanted to ask about the Christian church at this point in time, because certainly one of the institutions which survived the collapse of the Roman Empire was the Christian church. And um, I'm wondering if they had 
a any body of law uh, and whether there were any Roman law elements within that body of law. Yeah, the church is a very interesting institution in 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 this entire period. I mean, it's already the fact that uh, during the Roman Empire, when the Roman Empire is still going strong, the emperor issues uh, a law that says that bishops can judge cases under Roman law. And this has to do with that, that the Roman Empire doesn't have enough judges. So, so they think we have this large group of, of people who are educated and who can come to settlements of disputes that are acceptable to people. So, so they, they get that right. And this is also something that survives after the fall of the empire. The bishops are often a part of the, uh, the the sort of presidency of, of these large meetings that I talked about. Uh, at the same time, of course, the church develops its own legal system uh, to partially, I mean, mostly uh, deal with internal discipline and uh, to deal with how the sacraments are, are administered and so forth. I mean, the idea of a strict idea of a sacrament is not quite developed yet, but, but uh, uh, the church develops rules for, for how, to, how to deal with baptism and marriage and, and you know, all, the, all the usual things. That's helpful. And did the church at this point have any rules uh, governing authority? Were there concepts of political authority of rule uh, developed in, in canon law at this point? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the church, uh, the church has a lot of ideas of authority. I mean, we only have to think about uh, Augustine's writings about uh, uh, on the on the city of God. And and that's sort of kind of political theory that that he he puts out. Pope Gelasius later on uh, developing the ideas of the two swords that the church holds one of the swords that holds authority over the people, uh, secular authority holds the other sword, and the swords have to collaborate. And and the church's sword should be the stronger, according to Gelasius, and so forth. These, these ideas continued to be developed uh, in antiquity in the early Middle Ages and I mean obviously later later as well. So the, there were um, there were uh, there were good and interesting ideas for how political authority, where political authority is vested and so forth. That's very interesting and that's a thread I'd like to uh, keep track of as we go along here. Uh, but first, eventually, law, as maybe as we know it, begins to reemerge in Western Europe. I'm hoping you could describe how that happens in Western Europe, at least. Yeah, it's uh, it's a very interesting development that you sort of have this kind of. Uh, uh, I don't like these terms, but but sub-Roman law going on in the former Roman Empire, which is basically transmitted orally, not orally in the in the in the sense that uh, people memorize books or anything like that, but orally in in that uh, uh, people uh, follow procedures and and have. Uh, rules of thumb for, for what is valid in different situations. Uh, 
And this works works very, very well. I mean, we know something about how it works, especially in Italy. Uh, it's also in Italy where uh, uh, one starts in the 11th century to look for, for the actual law. Uh, that is to say, the, the text of the law. Uh, if you look at Roman law, Justinian had issued these huge law books uh, in, in the 530s, you know, the digest, the court, and so forth. They stopped being read, uh, at least in Western Europe, after, say, about six, the year 600. Um, the, some of their contents lives on in, in this kind of practical oral legal culture that, that continues, uh, continues in Europe. But then people start to look for the books in the 11th century, and they find them. They find the code, they find the digest, and they find, find the rest of it. Um, and uh, then uh, these books, which are generally difficult for people to understand, because it's very complex Latin, and indeed some of it is in Greek, which in Western Europe there's almost nobody who understands. Uh, the, it's difficult, so uh, they start to study them, and uh, people who know more about what what the what the text means start to teach others, and that's sort of the the seed of the law schools that that's, then spring up in, in the eleventh century, first in Italy and then in the in the rest of Europe. That's very interesting. It's interesting that an archaeological find could reinvigorate legal studies like that. I'm wondering, you know, you get the you get these laws. How did people interact with them specifically? Uh, what did they do to study them? What did they do to teach them? Uh, what were their procedures? Yes, um, I mean, it's first of all they they found the books because you, they went looking for them. And that has to do with uh, medieval society having developed in a way that made people realize they needed more law. So they started to look for them. The books were there all the time. They just, uh, they were not interested earlier. They, they had a legal system that they thought worked well enough. But it is in the 11th century where they get this realization that we, we have to be better at this. Uh, and that has to do with sort of just general European history of, of the period, the investiture controversy and, and the upswing of trade and, and so forth. But then what you get is, is uh, uh, you have the texts. You also have, we must not forget that we have the canon law texts as well. This is also collected and recopied and, and uh, uh, studied in, in parallel to the Roman law. What people do at first is that, I mean, simply the people who understand the text better than others are sitting there and reading through the text line by line and then explain in, you know, in more common language uh, what the text means. And we can see this if you look at the oldest manuscripts and, and we can see that some of the students or maybe the teacher uh, have taken down these explanations and put them in the margin of the manuscript. So there might be a difficult word in the text and the word is explained in the margin. Or there might be an interesting concept in the, in the text and the margin says, well, look at this place where the same concept is, is uh, mentioned in formulated differently. Or look at this text where you have something that actually says the contrary to what it says here. 
and thus you start to get uh, you get people to not only understand linguistically what the text says, but they also start to understand the law that's expressed in the text and how it hangs together with the law that's expressed in other books or elsewhere in the same book. That process of harmonization is important, I think, in legal education even, even today. You take different different principles, different laws, and, and oftentimes their intention and the job of the lawyer, the job of the law student in learning is, is trying to harmonize and make sense of those uh, contradictions. So it's interesting to see that there's such deep roots of that in in our uh, in our society. Yeah, it, it's very interesting. I mean, this is uh, this is a method that started in the eleventh, twelfth century, and then it's it's refined in different ways, and and we still, to some degree, use it. They start to do, I think, quite interesting things with it in the twelfth century. This is when they, it's almost like they start playing with the text. This is they find all these rules, and then uh, uh, they are. Uh, uh, having fun with uh, uh, trying to uh, understand the law behind it and so forth. There are preserved from the maybe 1130s, 1140s, uh, a, a bunch of uh, student exercises, or what must be student exercises, where it's clear that somebody has, has uh, designed a, a kind of uh, uh, funny or, or uh, weird law case that you are supposed to then use the law that you have learned to, to try to settle. I mean, it asks things like, if, uh, if the king of Africa owes me money, how do I sue him to get that money? Uh, or uh, if I buy a horse uh, from somebody, uh, a horse, ut optimus maximusque, which is the Roman legal uh, term for for you know a standard horse that is good in all ways. Uh, you buy it as being such. It turns out that it is uh, it limps. Uh, it's not it's not actually a very good horse. Uh, and because the, your horse is not running as fast as it should, you are captured by the enemy, and your family has to pay your, your ransom. The question is. Of course, you can sue the guy who sold the horse for uh, to you for the price of the horse. Can you also sue him for the ransom? Uh, and then you you get to discuss that, and you get to show off how well you know the Roman law of contract, or or or, or and so forth. Uh, I think what really fascinates me about this text is that it seems that these people had fun with the law. It, they didn't design examples that that uh, you know boring examples. They 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 designed interesting and funny examples that they also likely to remember the rest of their lives. That's that's pretty pretty cool to hear. It's at least cool to hear that the law school hypothetical was was uh, prevalent in the twelfth century. <laughs> uh, definitely definitely still going on. And if you le read some. Supreme Court cases, or any court for that matter, today, courts have fun with statutory interpretation. They, you know, they put glosses on on vague or ambiguous words. Uh, 
in in statutes they you can you can read for example yates which is a supreme court case about uh is fish a certain type of evidence i believe and they um they they use their canons of statutory interpretation and, and have a lot of fun deciding this question so it seems that that uh, that process has has very deep roots and it's probably just very tempting for lawyers to have fun with that once they've mastered the materials indeed yeah yeah. Uh, so you mentioned that there's a, this emerging study of law into a, a society that had laws already. One would think usually that the political elites of a, of a society would dislike any change to the status quo. I'm wondering how political elites in Western Europe handled the emergence of or the revival of law yeah i think that revival is actually usually uh, led by the elites it's the elites that want to change and that is to actually give them more power uh, to it's sort of like the king who, who grabs more power by finding the old laws or sometimes uh, uh, finding within quotation marks old laws that in fact, are new laws that that uh, that king has has issued at the time. Uh, so they are driving the process. I think it's if you have resistance, it's usually resistance from the from lower down, which means that given the nature of medieval source material, we we don't know very much about it. There's a big uh, uh, societal some call it revolution around at some point around the year thousand where really the way that uh, uh, relationships between different people in society are redefined. And uh, I mean, this has a lot to do with uh, feudalism and, and uh, uh, state authority and, and so forth and so on. Uh, but this is, these are changes that are driven from above to a very large degree. And uh, the the finding an interpretational law is, I think, also driven from, from above. That makes sense. If you have a, a system of law which helps to centralize authority, then the people in authority uh, would obviously uh, like that like that system of law. Uh, yeah. And, and it's and, about money as well. I mean, yes. it's about income that uh, if... Uh, I mean, I, I think one can see that that uh, in the a lot of this, what I talk about, this practical way that courts functioned and that were transferred from from generation to generation just by observation and and orally. Uh, and instead of court, I should probably say something like assembly or so, because court might not be the quite correct word. You can see how these op these operate. That it's it's very much uh, uh, self service law. That it's you as an individual and you in your group of, uh, I mean, people that you have connections to, some of whom are in your family. You are more or less uh, coming to these settlements uh, together, and uh, together with your opponent. Uh, and if there's any anything of value changing hands, it's between you and your opponent. The kings have the interest, the, the elites have the interest of coming in and say, oh, wait, you have to pay a fine to me. 
uh, and uh, as you might know in the in the early in the middle ages there's very little taxation going on in europe uh, it the income for 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 the political elites uh, the fines from courts are actually one of the one of the larger posts but and this is something that comes into place with uh, with uh, this uh, legal all these legal discoveries or this new legal work in the 11th and 12th century and and you know and so on later in the middle ages and i suppose if i'm a merchant or a farmer or someone i wouldn't necessarily oppose that too much because i don't mind having resort to a, a, a powerful court that can enforce contracts. I don't mind having um, a state which can protect me. Uh, so it's not all bad. Um, not, it's not just a pure power play for the elites, I suppose, in that in that sense. No, it isn't. It certainly uh, people appreciate a better functioning court system. Great. I want to get back to canon law, but first, I think this is a good time to pause and hear from our sponsors. Tis the season for Sultan's Salts and Spices. Come to Sultan's for black pepper, cinnamon, ginger, saffron, and salt. Worried about wandering brigands? Sultan's will deliver to your nearest monastery by the next full moon guaranteed. Order in the next week and receive a shilling discount. Welcome back. I wanted to transition into Gratian. Good. I, I, uh, I'll start by asking, who is Gratian? Yeah, that's actually something of a problem. Uh, he, he wrote this huge book, or at least some part of this huge book, uh, as it is preserved and printed several times since the beginning of printing. Uh, it has almost 4,000 chapters, so it's a huge book. Uh, some point in around 1140, uh, most people agree, uh, so he's an important person, but uh, who, exactly who he was is uh, really difficult to pinpoint. I believe that it's clear from the book that uh, um, Gratian was a teacher. He was one of these people that took the texts of, uh, in his case, canon law, and explicated them and contrasted them to other texts within canon law uh, to, to res resolve any kind of, of uh, discordances between different text contradictions. Um, and uh, uh, then we used for a long time to think that he was a monk because everybody said he was a monk already in the 12th century, but there's actually no good evidence for that. What we think that we know now, and this is research that's been done relatively recently within the last 15 years, is uh, that uh, he stopped being a teacher. Uh, he was probably a teacher in Bologna. He stopped being a teacher and instead he became a bishop of Cusi in Tuscany, where he died. We know his date of death, the 10th of August, because that is when... Uh, a mass was sang for him, or, or you know, some kind of liturgical uh, memorialization was going on every year. But we don't really know which year. I usually say that he he died circa eleven forty five question mark, 
because he could just as well have died in 1165. It depends a little of, on how one fits him into the list of bishops of QC in, in the 12th century. So as bishop, there's really no evidence that he had any importance whatsoever. I mean, bishops are important in the Middle Ages, so surely he was an important local person, but nothing more than of local importance, I would say. But as teacher, he was really significant because his, his book, which we call the Decretum, uh, is really, uh, uh, it, it's a hugely important signpost in the way, in on the road to uh, a coherent legal system in Europe, or coherent legal systems, I should say. And indeed, this was a book that was used within the Catholic Church until 1918 as a valid law book. You could go to a church court and you could you could base your case on, on chapters in this book from around 1140. That's very impressive to have such a such a legacy. Well, after your mm -hmm. yeah, I want to definitely get to the substance and the importance of the decretum. But first, I would like to ask: When did Gratian write the decretum, and how do we know? Well, we know uh, there are two versions of the decretum. Uh, one shorter with uh, about eighteen hundred and sixty chapters. And this, this, as it survives, cannot have been written before 1139, because he quotes a decision of the Second Lateran Council of Pope Innocent II in 1139. Uh, then there is kind of a second edition of it that is in many ways very different in character uh, from, from the first one. Uh, it's a different kind of project to put this second edition together. And this is the reason why I and many other scholars, but not everybody, thinks that the second edition has a different author. And that we only know that it must have been a finished work uh, by 1158, when the Bishop of Paris quotes it at length, at such length that one would today say that he was a plagiarist, but of course that did not apply in the Middle Ages. I mean, this is Peter Lombard in the in the sentences where he lays out the theology of the Catholic Church in a way that actually determined the theology of the Catholic Church for centuries after, after him. But he definitely read Gratian. Uh, uh, I, mean, I should say he read the Decretum in this second edition or recension, as we say, technically. There is also a, a court decision from the year 1150 that seems to use the second recension of Gratian's decretum. And if, as most, I think almost everybody believe, uh, the, the document is not forged uh, and, uh, and so forth, this is actually evidence that it must have been done before 1150. But it's quite interesting that it all happens between 1139 and 1150. Okay, Gratian probably started the work before 1139. There's very little law from, from the, there's really only one statute from the Second Lateran Council that he includes. Uh, but he can't, I don't think he started long before that. Uh, but within this time span of, of say, 15 years, 
you really have a lot of legal activity uh, in in uh, in Italy at this point, and this just shows us, uh, I think, of how important and how urgent it was for people at the time to, uh, from their perspective, modernize their law. So you mentioned that people almost immediately started using Gratian as a source. I'm wondering, though, what sources Gratian used, because surely he didn't write this all uh, out of thin air. So how did he, how did, what did he use to compile the Decretum? Well, uh, Gratian used the sort of uh, ecclesiastical tradition of lawmaking from uh, the first millennium plus of uh, the existence of the church. Uh, and he accessed this through actually quite a relatively small number of books. He, 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 he might have written the, the entire, uh, his entire work in both recension, he and his successors, uh, in uh, using maybe 10 different books uh, that most of them were actually not much older than Gratian. They, they were less than 100 year, years older than Gratian. Uh, and is further evidence for how much legal activity there was once this started in the 11th century. And there were other collections of uh, uh, of canon law simply. What Gratian did that is new and is surely the reason why his book became so successful is that while uh, all these other older books, they contained uh, uh, simply uh, statements of law. I mean, the legal text itself. Uh, Gratian take those, takes those over, uh, you know, 1800 plus chapters in the first recension and then almost 2,000 more in the second. Uh, but he puts it into a kind of dialectical framework where he puts his discussion of the texts into the book. So he says that, you know, Pope Gelasius says this, but this other Pope says that. Uh, the way we should uh, understand this is that they talked about it in different ways. Uh, for instance, how does marriage start uh, according to canon law? Well, uh, one church father, I, I hesitate to, to give the names because I'm sure they're going to mix them up, but say Augustine says that it, it starts with consent and, some other, and Pope Innocent I says it starts when the, the, the spouses have sex with each other. And then Gratian says in his discussion, well, you know, it sort of starts with consent when both the bride and the groom says yes to the question of whether they want to marry the other person. But it really becomes a full marriage only when they have sex, because the purpose of marriage is to procreate. And Gratian had read that in, the, in Genesis in the Bible, what God says to Adam and Eve when, when he throws them out of, the, of paradise, go out and procreate. Uh, so he sort of combines these different strands and take things that that is contradictory uh, and says that oh they only appear to be contradictory because this is if you see it in this way both are true. That sounds remarkably like the process you described earlier when people were first 
reinteracting with Roman law, was there any influence uh, one to the other or both to each other, uh, which helped develop this method? Yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of the same method. It's it's just a, a further, uh, you start by trying to figure out what the difficult words mean, and then you start to figure out what, what, what other texts say similar or contradictory things, or slightly different or, or whatever. And then you 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 work out these these uh, funny examples where you can you have something to debate. And Gratian did a lot of that too. Uh, there are thirty six uh, sort of thirty six situations, thirty six case studies in Gratian. Or most of them are so complicated, so they raise like multiple legal issues. So in a way, you could say it's it really many more case studies that Gratian have smashed into just 36. I mean, it's silly things about like somebody agrees to marry somebody else and then they marry them and say yes, and they, you know, they have sex and everything. And then it's like, it turns out the next day that, oh, this wasn't the person I thought I was marrying. So like, what happens then? That's quite the mix up. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's interesting. I just... Before we move on to more substantive things about Gratian, I just wanted to ask whether there were any tensions developing between civil authorities and church authorities in terms of what law applied to whom. And, you know, you had these two systems of law, which seem to interact, which seem compatible in many ways, but they're developing and they're getting bigger and bigger. Was, was any tension developing at this point in time? I mean, there, there certainly was tension. And something that I, I haven't mentioned yet is that, as far as we know, Gratian was was active in Bologna. It was also in Bologna, in northern Italy, where the a lot of the certainly 12th century work on understanding Roman law was happening. So this was all happening in the in the same city. Uh, it's there's no evidence of what is the relationship between. The, between Gratian and the Roman law teachers of, of the same time. Well, there's very little actually. The Grat not Gratian, but the second Gratian, the sort of secondary central actually quotes at some length one of the Roman, uh, Roman law professors in, in Bologna. Uh, so, so they are sort of uh, dependent upon each other. Uh, for for because they're all interested in law and both canon law and Roman law is law and can help you understand things. But of course, in the same time is when you have all these fights uh, within uh, within society of uh, of like uh, what law applies. Uh, I mean, the early sort of archetypical fight is the investiture controversy. That begins between Pope Gregory the Seventh and Emperor Henry the Fourth in the in the ten seventies, but and then you have things like the murder of Becket, Thomas Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury, inside his own cathedral, by the henchmen of the English king Henry the Second, and what they are fighting about, uh, and this is only the most extreme and uh, the most famous example of the collision between the church and state uh, in this period, what they're fighting about is law. Because you have, uh, you have all this new law uh, coming about, both in the church and in uh, secular society. 
Henry II did himself a, a, a great developer of the, of the common law, uh, not just him personally, but, but the people that worked for him as well. And uh, it simply happens that uh, they, they, they start to, they, they disagree on which law should, should be valid. For instance, I mean, the big issue with Beckett and uh, Henry II is uh, who should judge a priest who uh, commits a crime. And according to the canon law developed by Gratian and his successors, it, uh, a priest should always be judged in the church court. While uh, according to a king like Henry II, uh, he doesn't like priests to be judged by church courts. He wants to judge them in his court. That is, maybe not personally, but by the king, but by, by his judges. Uh, and the reason why he thinks so is that church courts are in a way quite attractive, that they, the most serious punishment they can meet out is excommunication. So you can't be, you can't be uh, condemned to death by a church court. The king can certainly condemn you to death. And what Henry II said, and he sort of has a point, is that, well, look, here we have these serial offenders, and they are just given essentially slap on the wrist, excommunicated, and then they they uh, they they regret it and, and they do the the penance that they are prescribed, and then they just do the same thing again. I want my hands on these guys. Uh, to to get them to stop uh, stealing people's stuff or wives or daughters or or whatever it is. So this is kind of a, a theme throughout the Middle Ages, the the uh, tug of war between between kingdoms and the church of uh, particularly who has jurisdiction over what. And I can assure the listeners, in fact, I invite them to try to examine the choice of law rules in the United States. I don't think uh, we as a society have made much progress in deciding what law applies when and where, uh, but yeah. So I want to now get into more concrete topics. And I'm wondering, let's talk generally about whether Gratian in particular, canon law in general, um, helped transmit some older legal concepts into contemporary and emerging uh, legal fields. And I'd like to start with concepts of polit political authority. At this time, I presume the church had developed a pretty robust theory of the papacy and of ecclesial authority. And I'm wondering to what extent those concepts, those legal theological, whatever you want to describe them, concepts uh, might have played, or how they might have been borrowed to develop a concept of kingship. Yeah, it's it's a very complicated issue, but there are certainly uh, clear relationships uh, in the high Middle Ages, the 12th century, but also goes way back with uh, this kind of sacral uh, kingship uh, that uh, maybe a point to look at is when uh, uh, Charlemagne's father, Pippin the Short, takes over power in the in the Frankish kingdom in 751. 
he has one of his bishops uh, salve him with the chrism, holy holy oil, uh, following an example from the from the Old Testament where where this is happening with the old uh, kings of Israel, David and Solomon and these people. Um, and he first has a local bishop do it, and then the Pope actually himself comes up to to what is today France and and redoes it in 754. And this is the same thing as we will, I was going to say that we will see now when the English King Charles III is going to be crowned, I suppose, sometime next year. Except that they, this is the part of the ceremony they never show on TV because it's considered so sacred. Um, it's, uh, it, the, I mean, in the Middle Ages, it leads eventually to the crowning with a, with a crown as, as well. Although I think the chrism is, is, is earlier than the crown. And uh, uh, where, the, where it's always done by a, a cleric, a priest, a bishop, or, or, or preferably the pope. Um, and um, this uh, signals that uh, the grace of God is implanted in the ruler. Who, who thus is ruling on behalf of, of God. One is using then some of the same concepts as one has, that the church has developed about the power of bishops and the power of, of the Pope and, and, and so on. Uh, this is, uh, it's something that I find actually quite difficult to discuss because it's difficult and it's, it's very complex. Uh, and I want to try to avoid rambling too much. But... Right. It's very complex and probably worthy of its own episode at some point in time. Yeah. Uh, it's also like uh, uh, to return to the 12th and the, and the 13th century. It is canon law and the church that develops a lot of concepts of, uh, that are used in, in, uh, in uh, 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 I mean, in secular government until today. I mean, the idea of an office as distinct from a person. That's uh, something that's developed. Gratian more or less hints at it, but it's developed by the people who then continue his work and continue to work with his uh, with his his book, the Decretum. Uh, they come to this idea: that you have to distinguish the person and the and the office. Uh, some such a thing as representative. Uh, elections, for instance, the first elections where you count votes are in the church when you elect a bishop in the 12th century is when that develops. And especially in 1179, when the Pope sets down that to elect the Pope was nothing but the Bishop of Rome. Well, he's a much more than the Bishop of Rome, but that's what this basically is. So it's the same procedure. You have to have two thirds of uh, the, the present electoral body, i.e. the cardinals, uh, vote for the Pope. This is, this is the first time we get in, in anywhere in the world in law that somebody is elected by counting votes, not by uh, you know, the previous person pointing at you or, or acclamation or, or, or something like that. So there are all these uh, uh, political political science uh, uh, basic concepts that come out of the canon law. Right, that's interesting. And you also you just discussed the idea of 
an office separate from the person who occupies that office. And this is, I mean, I think this is common sense to Americans today. Now, uh, it's so embedded in our culture, we have the presidency and then the person who occupies the office. It, it becomes a concrete legal issue um, throughout American history. President Nixon, uh, President Clinton, and now President Trump are all facing, have, have faced or are facing uh, legal issues where the scope of the office uh, is in tension with the actions of the person and how to figure that out. So it's definitely uh, something that's still very much with us. Yeah, indeed. But you don't have that in the early Middle Ages. There's no, you know, Charlemagne, uh, king of the Franks, and then emperor of the Romans died in 814. And like, his, he is both office and person. Uh, there's just no distinction then. That's very interesting. Another thing I wanted to discuss was natural law, because natural law is obviously deeply rooted in, well, first of all, it was certainly present in, in uh, Roman law. It's also obviously a deeply uh, Christian concept, deeply rooted in Christian uh, legal thought. Did natural law uh, emerge in legal systems here? Was it always there? Did, the, did they borrow it from the church? Uh, just curious about uh, if you could discuss that. Yeah, uh, natural law is, is a re truly an interesting topic, the way it develops in the Middle Ages. And of course, after that too, but, but that's not my expertise, but you know, the natural law jurist of the 17th century and so forth. But it all sort of starts with Gratian, actually. Yes, there was natural law in, in Roman law, but Gratian knows daily about uh, the concept in Roman law. Gratian doesn't know Roman law very well, actually. Uh, surprisingly, but that that's uh, either he doesn't know or he pretends he doesn't know. I'm not sure that that's a big difference. Um, and uh, he he develops his own idea about natural law. Uh, he actually starts the entire huge book with with a sentence uh, that is uh, uh, humankind is ruled by two things, namely custom and natural law. I'm sorry, I should have said that in the opposite direction, namely natural law and custom. And by custom, he means all, practically all the law, everything, statute law, uh, precedent, uh, etc. I mean, everything that we think of as law. By natural law, he means, and that's the second sentence, he means what is, what is written in the Old and New Testament. Um, and uh, then he goes on also to cite the the kind of uh, the the uh, uh, watered down version of the Roman law concept of natural law, where he, he says that uh, you know it's natural and it's based in our instinct that that uh, uh, we bring up our children, uh, that we take what is it, what exists in nature for 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 our needs. Uh, in water, in, in, in the soil and in the air, and so forth and so on. Um, and uh, he, he, he starts with these two ideas, and then he develops them in interesting ways. And now I just want to mention one way, and that is that sin, since, uh, according to him, natural law is what is in the Bible. What is in the Bible is God's word. And God never changes his mind. 
God is, is eternal and uh, has always, I mean, has always existed and have always had the same ideas. And that means that natural law can never be changed. What he calls custom can be changed. I, I mean, there may be a statute today, and in 10 years, another statute that, that disqualified the today's statute. But you can never uh, disqualify what is in natural law. And that makes it very important to define uh, what is in natural law. And this is something that Gratian does a little with, but his commentators, the people who follow on him later in the 12th century, in the 13th, and I mean, much later too, uh, take this idea and run with it. And if I can give just one example, uh, which is, uh, I think, an extremely interesting example, it's about procedural law. Uh, the uh, we today we know that we have a right to be called to a trial that is going to deal with ourselves. You know, you can't have a trial without me having a chance to stand up in court and defend myself. And this is uh, there is uh, somebody who may have studied Gratian himself. Uh, is it any way somebody who follows very closely upon him in time, who has the funny name Paucapalia, which is not, I mean, it's not a common name, it never was, but it, there are several people in, in, it, in Middle Italy were called Paucapalia in the 12th century. And he writes a commentary to Gratian's Decretum, where he starts by saying, okay, uh, procedural law is very important, and he started in paradise. It started after Adam and Eve had eaten of the forbidden fruit. And what happens next? Well, God says, Adam, where art thou? I mean, he spoke, of course, in, in King James Version English. Uh, so, and Adam says, I'm here. And, and God say, why did you eat of the tree that I explicitly prohibited you from eating from? And Adam says, well, you know, she, the woman whom you gave me, told me to eat of it. And then Pagapalia says, look, here is, uh, God is calling Adam to court. So if God is calling Adam to court, then surely we also have to do it. Uh, God doesn't put himself above the rules. Uh, and look, he's allowing Adam, his own creation, is allowing him to defend himself. And he defends himself by a, essentially a, a, a plea of, it's your fault. You gave me this woman and she, she told me to eat it. Uh, and from this, Paca Paulia draws the conclusion that these rules are set down once and for all in God's mind and they can never be changed. And that's still with us today. Uh, in in the, the, most of the Western world, you cannot have a, a court case uh, against you without you having the chance to defend yourself. Uh, very interesting. I'm surprised that Adam uh, didn't ask for a jury trial. But anyway, I uh, yeah. well, I won't. <laughs> it's I difficult won't... to find 12, 12. Yes, he had a woman and a snake who could have could have could have done that. Yeah. Um, so there are the other, I mean, you they get really carried away by this. Like there's this wonderful late 13th century text, which is when Satan sues 
Jesus Christ for for taking humanity away from him by you know <laughs> this ties into medieval theology of what what Christ's death on the cross means and you know it was seen as ransoming humanity from the Satan and you have this entire court trial like it's uh, it's just a text uh, which is really funny to read I must say yeah, that's very creative. Christ I'll ask you. I mean, it. it uh, I think Satan has grounds for appeal because it's Virgin Mary is the judge. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, he's going to have a hard time enforcing a judgment against Jesus. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, there is that, of course. Uh, I'll just ask you about one more area, and then I don't want to take up too much of your time. So the church obviously had a complicated and developed theory of. Um, of say like family law let's just take that as an example of of marriage and things like that i'm wondering if the church concepts of of family law uh, influenced civil law um i'm hoping you could tease out that interplay there yeah i mean it 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 certainly did marriage is uh, indeed a, a useful legal area to look at uh the idea that uh, I, I hinted to that hinted at that earlier the idea that it is the consent of the parties the bride and the groom that makes the marriage uh, it's certainly already there i mean it is in roman law it's it's in uh, just tradition for for a lot of law for a long time gratian emphasizes it particularly uh, and his his uh, successors continue that process. Uh, we it is more surprising than we we might think because at the time, of course, it was very much parents and also feudal lords and others who who decided who should marry whom, and you didn't necessarily ask for for what people. The, the bride and the groom themselves thought about it um, but this be, the the consent of the parties becomes very well established in canon law uh, the church uh, manages in most places in europe to take over jurisdiction over uh, marriages uh, which means that this is the law that that then is uh, applied uh, there are plenty of court cases from later in the Middle Ages where where the issue at stake is whether uh, whether two persons actually are married uh, or not, and the the most of society agrees to have the church decide such an issue. The bishop actually of each diocese is in charge of deciding such things, unless he delegates it to somebody else. Uh, and this then becomes, you know, over the centuries, it, it, it becomes like the natural way of, of marriage happening. So then when with secularization and so forth in the modern era, um, modern era after 1500, uh, secular law takes over this definition that really comes out of church law and particularly comes out of Gratian reading St. Augustine very carefully. And, and a few other early authors. And I think this is a good example ho- of how uh, not only, uh, you know, the law of wherever we live 
uh, I live in Norway, and I, in Norway, you certainly, in Norwegian law, it's the consent of the of the bride and the groom. I mean, you can look at the UN declaration of, of uh, uh, rights in marriage and so forth. That's like the first paragraph is that it's, you have to consent. Uh, it's all over secular law today. It's all over our, our collective conscious, con consciousness. Uh, we've seen it on TV many times that, that people get married this way. And that process really starts with uh, Gratian's work in, in around 1140. That's really interesting. I wish I could go on. I, I certainly could, but um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Thank you so much for joining us today. I, I learned a lot. We had a very wide-ranging conversation. I just wanted to... A lot of fun. Yes, definitely. I just wanted to finish up by asking you if you had anything that you've been working on or have worked on recently that you would like to plug. Yes, I, I mean, I, I this year I, I published together with John Way uh, the Cambridge History of Medieval Canon Law, which is something we've been working on for several years. Uh, it has a, a lot of what I think are really interesting chapters uh, written by by different scholars, and indeed I've written some of them myself. So, so I'm, I'm certainly happy to plug that. I thought when after I'd done all this work and you know multiple times read the actual text, I thought, wow, I really do know a lot about medieval canon law right now, and I'm going to forget it. So I asked Cambridge uh, if they would were interested in a in a shorter book uh, outlining medieval canon law with concrete examples from medieval court cases. So that is what I'm working on now. And uh, look for it at your closest bookstore in two, three years. That's great to hear. Yeah, those Cambridge collections are, are wonderful. So certainly add that to the collection. Um, uh, well, thank you so much for joining us. Have a nice day. Thank you.